From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He's one of the first people diagnosed with a presumptive case of COVID-19 in Colorado. You know, you kind of want to know what you have when you're feeling that crummy. But that made it really real, and of course, your mind just starts racing with all the what-ifs. We'll get his perspective on what isolation is like as coronavirus spreads. Then, what lessons did another virus, the norovirus, teach a Colorado school district? For instance, we can fully disinfect an elementary school in approximately two hours with those machines. And we answer a Colorado Wonders question that generates a lot of guesses. I've been here for 50 years or more, and I've always wondered what the front range is. Is it a mountain range, or is it range like home on the range? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. We'll begin with a Denver man who has COVID-19. Diagnosed more than a week ago, he's at home in isolation taking care of himself. My colleague Ryan Warner reached Ian on the phone with a lot of questions about having and recovering from this novel coronavirus. Ian, thanks for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. I wonder how you're feeling, and I would love to have you answer that physically and mentally. I'm feeling better. I still have a cough, so I apologize if I cough here. But other than the cough, I feel pretty good, just a little tired, I guess. And mentally, I'm feeling better. I had my moments of, uh, you know, it can be a little scary with all of the unknowns that come with this. It's hard to not let your head kind of go down that path. What were your symptoms, and is that what led you to get tested? to feel like I was getting some hot flashes or symptoms of a fever. And at that point, you know, knew that I was coming down with something and thought it was just the flu. After a rough night's sleep of a high fever, I went in to see my doctor the next day and was tested for influenza A and B. That came back negative. So I was tested for strep. He uh, x-rayed my lungs just to double check. And after running the gamut of tests, he thought he should at least try to get his hands on a test kit. And I know that he really went to bat to get his hands on a test kit and finally did. And those results came back in 24 hours that I was presumed positive. Tell me about the minutes and the hours immediately after that. Yeah, it was a little freaky. I had already been quarantining myself in our basement We have a guest bedroom and bath down there and TV and just so the family didn't get the flu. You know, on one hand, it was, you know, you kind of want to know what you have when you're feeling that crummy. But that made it really real. And, of course, your mind just starts racing with all the what ifs. There wasn't much a doctor could prescribe. I mean, there's really nothing other than manage your pain with Tylenol for the fever and drink a lot of fluids. Do you know how you got this? Oh, I have no idea. Yeah. Is that something yeah. that you rack your brain? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I've gone through my, uh, you know, the calendar on my phone a bunch trying to retrace steps. I have no idea. Now, you've gotten a, a legal document, I believe from Denver, that says you must stay away from other people. Uh, how has that been, that experience, 
And how are you keeping your family safe? You say you're in a different part of the house. Do you have any interactions with them over video or what? Yeah, so immediately following the news from the doctor, we received a call from the Denver Health Department. A woman introduced herself as the contact for us, for our family. All four of us, I have two sons. We are to stay in the house for 14 days with no contact with anyone else. And that includes your wife, obviously. That includes my wife. And each one of us received an actual document. Are they doing okay? They're doing great. Fortunately, the boys can play outside. Are you still isolating yourself from them? How do you have contact with your own family? Well, (coughs) excuse me, other than uh, once a day, my wife would clear a path for me to come up the stairs, walk outside without having to touch anything, and I'd sit somewhere outside 50 feet from them just to get some fresh air. But other than that and seeing them in passing for that 20 to 30 minutes each day, I was in the basement uh, completely isolated from them. You as say far that, as food goes... Yeah, uh, I, I was just going to ask actually would, about uh, food. You know, we, we'd communicate via text or, and FaceTime with the boys, you know, at bedtime. And she would mask up and bring down meals for me. And so you've been able to eat something other than shelf-stable ramen. Yes, exactly. How old are you? 46. Much of the conversation about the effect that coronavirus has on people is about age. Um, Correct. What sort of has gone through your head? You, you say that your head has gone in catastrophizing places. Yeah. You wonder at 46, am I, you know, am I on the younger side or am I on the older side? That was a little concerning. I mean, I, I am healthy. So I just had to keep telling myself that, you know, I'm, I'm relatively fit. I have no pre-existing respiratory conditions and that, you know, I was going to kick this thing. But I had my moments. You know, you're, you're holed up in a basement and you're watching TV and it's hard not to watch the news. Ian, you didn't want to use your last name and I'd love to ask why. Oh, I just, I don't know. I, I'm not one to uh, bring on a lot of attention, I guess. Maybe if my last name's out there, that media or whomever can try to track down where we live. Is it also about stigma, do you think? No, I have nothing to hide. I mean, I want this to be a helpful success story. Um, so I don't, I don't mind. I think there are a lot of people right now who know that we're in just normal cold and flu season as well. And who think, gosh, do I have coronavirus? Yeah, I think, first of all, it didn't feel like the cold. I never had any nasal congestion, sneezing, anything like that. It was the fever, a high fever, between 101 and 102. And then I had this dry cough. But I would say that the most important thing is to communicate with your doctor as soon as you have these symptoms and work with them to get tested. Are you in an economic position to deal with this? Yeah, I mean, I think we have a cushion that'll allow me to lay low for, I guess, as long as this takes. But it it is a little uh, nerve-wracking. I wonder what you'll do and what you're doing to disinfect. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm not sure how we're going to disinfect the basement at this point. You know, it's just a one-day-at-a-time mentality. The governor at one point used the word surreal to describe 
what the, what the country, what the globe is going through. Has this felt surreal? Is that a good adjective? Oh, very, very surreal. Have you been really bored? Well, thankfully, <coughs> TV and Netflix have occupied my time, and that's really important to do something that takes your mind off of it. What series has gotten you through? I'm just curious. <laughs> um, the Outsider was a good one. But that's based on Stephen King's best-selling novel, yeah. It is. That's well, right. so you went Asian for Asian you went Asian. for the creepy factor, even though real life can be creepy enough, I guess. Well, I started watching it before I came down with this. I so appreciate your time, Ian, and I wish you good health. And same to your family. Thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate it. And uh, everyone else out there, take care. Ian is one of the first people diagnosed with COVID-19 in Denver. He spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner by phone from his basement, where he remains under an isolation order. It seems no corner of public life is untouched by coronavirus, and that includes the political realm. On Saturday, Colorado's legislature took the unprecedented step of shutting down for at least two weeks. CPR's Capitol reporter Binta Brooklyn is here to talk about what this means. Hi, Binta. Hi, Avery. Was there any disagreement over whether this was the right step to take? There wasn't. Lawmakers agreed it was necessary to stop their work, and it was extremely bipartisan. The House and the Senate each passed a resolution on a voice vote, and legislative leaders in both parties were the main sponsors. Keep in mind, the legislature shut down a little over a week after the first coronavirus case was announced in Colorado, so it was a rapidly changing situation. I would say pretty early on, lawmakers were nervous about how quickly coronavirus could spread inside the state capitol. It's crowded. You've got tourists, lobbyists, school groups, hundreds of, well, actually 100 lawmakers, but then you add their staff and interns, and people literally stand shoulder to shoulder in certain parts of the building. As one lawmaker told me, under the best of circumstances, it's a germ factory. So what does this mean for the overall timing of session? Will they get to go longer than two weeks in May, or is this just lost time? That's a big question, and the state legislature actually asked the Colorado Supreme Court to settle a question about that over how long lawmakers can remain in session once they do return. The state constitution requires the session to last 120 consecutive days. The end date this year falls on May 6th. Republicans generally think lawmakers still need to adjourn on May 6th, no matter how much of a break they take. Democrats argue the session end date could be extended because of a rule that operates when Colorado is in a declared state of emergency. Now, big public crises like these can sometimes get people to put politics aside. Do you see that happening with lawmakers right now? I think we have seen that in terms of this solidarity about stopping their work temporarily. Uh, On a personal level, some lawmakers say they they felt everyone drawing together. And one compared it to the spirit after 9-11. There has been this focus, a sense of pragmatism, also uncertainty and anxiety. And the coronavirus is impacting so many aspects of American life right now. Democratic Senator Jeff Bridges says whenever lawmakers do return, he thinks some of the main Democratic priorities could fall by the wayside. I think when the session comes back, it's going to be a very different session. And the focus really will be on how do we get Colorado back on its feet. So we've been talking about a lot of big policies on the show, public health, insurance option, paid family leave. What happens to those those sorts of things? 
that's up in the air. A lot of it's going to hinge on when lawmakers come back and how much time they have to finish their work. They've taken a two-week pause, but it could be longer if necessary. If they have to end on May 6th, that gives Democrats less time to try to pass these major bills. They're complex, often controversial. Republicans will be happy to see those big bills fail. And given how quickly things are evolving with coronavirus, we have no idea what issues might rise to the highest priority. Let's talk about something that has to pass, the annual state budget. What does this hiatus mean for that effort? There's more flexibility now on the timing of that, but yes, it does have to pass. And Colorado's next economic forecast is later today. And the lawmakers tasked with writing the budget, they'll use these numbers to finalize the spending package. These six lawmakers will meet at some point during this two-week legislative break. Their meetings will be streamed online, but members of the public or press likely won't be allowed in the room. Democratic Representative Denea Eskar chairs the Joint Budget Committee, and she says the economic fallout we're seeing could be enormous, and that Budget Committee members, they say the state needs to brace for some serious budget cuts. I think anybody who's paid any attention to what's been happening economically across the globe is on pins and needles to see what our state forecast is going to look like. I don't think many people are very optimistic that there's going to be a lot of great things coming out of it. So I have to wonder, is it likely lawmakers will also be speaking privately and negotiating while the legislature is shut down? That's something I'll be watching for is how much legislating lawmakers do on this break. They, they probably could be and will be privately negotiating on bills. Stakeholding happens throughout the year. What's different about this is we are still technically in the middle of the legislative session and there won't be opportunities for the media to talk to legislators and lobbyists in the Capitol, see what's going on. So it'll be much harder to find out what's happening and a less transparent process for the public. Benta, thank you so much. Thanks, Avery. That's CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland, who's covering how coronavirus is affecting policymaking and politics in the state. The state's largest school districts are in the midst of deep cleaning to keep coronavirus at bay. Many are closed for at least two weeks, coinciding with spring break. It's something that's all too familiar in Mesa County. Last November, the 46 schools in that district were shut down when a stomach virus ran rampant. Superintendent Diana Serco made that tough decision, and she said made, and she made changes to her district's preventative measures to respond to infectious illnesses. She spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner from our Grand Junction studio, they started with how they responded, what the response was to norovirus and how it was in some ways easier than the response to coronavirus. The thing about norovirus that's different than, for instance, the COVID-19 is norovirus is not a secret to anyone. A child walks into the cafeteria, and why this might be a little bit graphic for some people, and, you know, throws up into the salad bar. So you obviously clear out your cafeteria, clear out your salad bar, you you know, pull kids back, you clean everything and you figure out another way to feed them lunch. So in other words, we had such graphic symptoms that we originally were closing just the individual schools that were impacted because we were trying not to close our entire system. We have a system where 50% of our students are on free and reduced lunch. So we take very seriously um, that many of our parents do not have paid time off. And we don't close our schools unless we feel that we have a situation where they're safer 
away from us than with us and mm. with each other. Now, of so. course, you have these cases at individual schools, but then someone has to put the pieces together and say, well, gosh, th- this is unusual. Uh, how right. did that occur? Well, I think, you know, being a large system is a distinct advantage in something like this. Having worked in small, medium, and large, you know, we have a system already set up. When we begin to pick up an inordinate amount of illnesses in a particular school, we get notified immediately. If we're above 10%, if we're above 12%, 15%. So we already have those mechanisms in place. So we began with when a particular school would get to 20%, we'd close that school. Mm. When it became that well over 50% of our schools and our staff were ill, that, you know, we were definitely losing the battle. I actually think those were the exact words that our staff who were monitoring this, our head nurse, Tanya Marvin, said to me, Diana, we are definitely losing this battle. So we shut the system down then, knowing that that is a, a hardship to people. Hardships, you say. And of course, there is a lot of talk about that now with school closures in the face of coronavirus. The teachers union, the largest in the state, the Colorado Education Association, imploring schools to continue to provide lunch for kids and to continue to pay educators. What what was your experience in Mesa County during the norovirus outbreak? Did you keep uh, food programs going and did you keep paying educators? We definitely keep paying educators because those are, you know, it's no different than a snow day. It's something that's beyond their control. It's done for the health and safety of students and staff and the community. So that's part of their natural contract. You have certain emergency days built into your calendar. You know, our food and service programs routinely provides breakfast and lunch for students over the course of the summer. And so they do those same mechanisms during school breaks. And so that's continuing even through spring break, and then presumably if your district did have to shut down for coronavirus? Yes. I think that's the Lunch Lizard program. It almost operates like a food truck. It definitely is. You bet. Yeah. And that's kind of out in the neighborhoods. It is. It goes around and has designated stop places, mostly in parks, where the kids can come to kind of a grab your lunch or grab your breakfast and go. What did you learn about cleaning and disinfecting? that you think other districts might benefit from hearing? We really upped our game in terms of, you know, like steam type machines that, you know, do a massive disinfection in a more condensed amount of time, making sure you're using the right products that contain the right percentage of alcohol or depending upon the type of virus, you know, Clorox. We jokingly say we had a dry run in November. It wasn't so dry based on the fact it was a neurovirus, but that gave us a real leg up in terms of being able to approach a possible reduction in school days or in our students being available in school. What do you mean by steam? Well, it really is a steam machine that actually has disinfectant in it. And for instance, we can fully disinfect an elementary school in approximately two hours with those machines. They're handheld and they just have a, you know, a burst of steam and then you load the disinfectant in that. Um, So it can cover all your doorknobs, your railings, your stairs, your seats, you know, all of those kind of things, desktops in a pretty efficient manner. And we've purchased additional ones 
importance of those after we found out about their effectiveness during the neurovirus outbreak. We've made sure that we increased the number of those that we had available and now have done so again and ordered two more. Now, what did you notice about the burden on parents in the wake of the norovirus outbreak in Grand Junction? Uh, you had to send kids home, and you know, Definitely. it's not that parents would naturally have childcare lined up. They really wouldn't. And for many of our families, you know, not all employers provide paid absences. So that was a concern. Because it was Thanksgiving break, that was the majority of the time they were off. There were three days that they were off that was not part of break. You know, many parents already knew they had to have um, something lined out for Thanksgiving. And I think during this, we're trying to notify parents to have a plan and be ready. But it's a definite hardship on the community because of the care piece. And we do know that then there will be students who are home alone, you know, because parents simply have no other options. Did you close playgrounds when you closed schools? You know, that's a great question. We did not close playgrounds because it was very cold. First of all, you don't get that many kids on your playground during those days. And we did disinfect that equipment as well. Um, and that was done routinely. What are your concerns And where do you find hope uh, in the face of coronavirus? Well, I think my concerns, obviously, that norovirus was a little bit easier if there's such a concept in this context because it was so graphic with how many kids were impacted. I think that the coronavirus can be more sneaky, and it also has a longer gestation period. So we are concerned that, you know, will we know when it's time to close a school. The nice thing is we have the guidance now from the state health department and the governor's office. We're concerned that in a school district with 46 schools, with needing to close, if you have three schools, closing a whole system, is that a little bit too much for only having three schools that are needing to close. So I think it's trying to find what's that sweet spot to keep things from spreading and keep your kids safe But also at the same time, when we turn 22,000 students loose into the community, going to the ball, being really, really exposed to many more germs than they might be in a school environment where you're disinfecting on a routine basis. Superintendent, thanks for your time. Thank you. Diana Serco is the superintendent in Mesa County's District 51. She spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. Serco had to close all the schools in her district in November due to a stomach bug. She's now preparing for the possibility of more closures due to coronavirus. From schools, work, and the economy to birthday parties and playdates, coronavirus is disruptive. What routines are you changing? How are you coping? Can you tell us a story of an act of kindness that gives you hope? Or maybe you've got a tip for adjusting to a new routine, like working from home or staying home with the kids. Your experience matters, and we want to hear from you. You can send us a voice memo to coloradomatters at CPR.org, and we may share it on this show in the days ahead. When we come back, a break from coronavirus. We'll answer a Colorado Wonders question. It's one that generates a lot of debate. What is the front range? We get the answer when Colorado Matters continues on CPR News. I'm Vic Vela, and this is CPR News. If you listen on weekends, you're used to hearing me say that. But another way I often introduce myself is this. I'm Vic, and I'm a recovering drug addict. And now I'm the host of a new podcast about recovery called Back From Broken. 
I talk to people about how they overcame some of the darkest moments of their lives. It's a show about honesty, perseverance, and hope. Listen and subscribe now at backfrombroken.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. And I'm Ryan Warner. The front range is a term you hear a lot in Colorado. It's in weather forecasts. A community college carries the name. It also has Coloradans wondering. I'm Hank Troy, and I live in Denver, and I've been here for 50 years or more, and I've always wondered what the front range is. Is it a mountain range, or is it range like home on the range? Lauren Law of Evergreen is a more recent arrival. She, too, reached out through Colorado Wonders about the term front range. I hear the weathermen talking about it, weather women, and I just don't quite know where I live. And judging by the responses I got on Twitter, there's not widespread agreement. I asked people to draw a map of what they think of as the front range. One person jokingly sent us photos of his stovetop pointing to the front range. More serious replies included the urban corridor from Fort Collins to Pueblo. Others stopped at Colorado Springs. Some excluded the metros, designating a swath of mountain communities from Estes Park down to Woodland Park. I asked Lauren and Hank for their theories. To me, being new to Colorado over the past four years, it seemed like it was just that front face of the mountains that you could first see when you were leaving Denver, more geographical. Do you think in Evergreen that you live on, along, inside the Front Range? I guess I have. I, I think it sounds cool if you live in the Front Range. I kind of feel like I do. Okay, you feel a part of the Front Range I in do. Evergreen. Hank, you're in Denver. I'm in Denver. Do you feel like a Front Ranger? <laughs> Not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> How do you define the term for yourself? Well, I keep hearing that it's all up and down the front range. So I'm imagining perhaps it's from Fort Collins down to Pueblo. I mean, is that the front range all the way up and down? I don't know. Well, Lauren, Hank, I'd like you to meet Sam Bach, who is public historian here at History Colorado, where you've agreed to meet us. Hi, Sam. Hi, Ryan. And you have been doing some digging. I sure have. What did you find? I found out that the front range, the geographical designation of the mountain range, is actually from about Laramie down to Colorado Springs. It doesn't usually include Pueblo. It ends right around the Pikes Peak group. Laramie, Wyoming, Indeed. down to Colorado Springs. And what do you base this on, Sam? So we base this on the records of the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. This is the group that was founded in the 1890s to put names to things throughout the country. The first use, the first official use that we could track down of the term front range was in the Hayden survey from 1873. 1873. Is the Hayden survey a kind of expedition? Yeah, this guy Ferdinand V. Hayden led this expedition to Colorado in 1873. And they really were one of the first groups to come in and put official names on things that stuck. They decided that front range was descriptive. If you come from the east, it's the first range you come to. It's the front range. Now, this is interesting. On Twitter, there was a lot of talk about the idea of the front range coming from an eastern perspective. Mm -hmm. A lot of people on the western slope, who also think the west slope is the best slope, don't love the idea of 
being thought of as the back range, for instance. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty common sentiment. Ari Armstrong of Westminster tweets, My father, who lives in Palisade, says the west side is the front range and Denver is on the back range. Nick Johnson points out, well, the first white immigrants came from the east, so eastern slope mountains, of course, became front. And Mark Cavanaugh adds that if you're from the western slope, the front range is that place that takes your water away and then takes it for granted. Uh, Okay, so this expedition comes along and that's the first reference to the term. Yeah, and they really use the term front range and Colorado range interchangeably in their report. The official designation of front range as the name for the mountains that run from Laramie to Colorado Springs came in 1891 when the U.S. Board of Geographic Names decided that front range was more descriptive than Colorado range. And so they officially designated it in that year. Okay, so this is an official term. Mm -hmm. And does it include just the foothills or also the high mountains along that stretch? It includes the Indian Peaks and Long's Peak. Those are the highest points in the range. It also includes Pikes Peak and the group of mountains that are down there. If you get a little further to the west, the mountains up by Summit County, those are in a whole different range. So Sam, we're talking mountain range here, right? We're not talking about the range, like home on the range. That's right. Yeah. It's really the geographical features, the foothills and the mountains that make up this mountain range. I think it's fair to say that the meaning of front range has grown and sort of is molded like clay by each individual. Do you have that sense, Sam? You know, I think there's a degree of that, but in the 1970s, you start seeing reporters, weather people referring to the communities, the cities along that range, that mountain range, as the front range. And so 1973, the U.S. Board on Geographic Names actually gets a letter from someone living in Denver asking you know, all these reporters and weather people are referring to this as the front range. Is that correct? And the board says, well, technically the term refers just to the geographic features, but you can use the term however you want. And so since then, it's really come into common use, you know, as individuals understand this region needs its own name. So that sounds awesome, Sam. You have some sort of letters, some documentation. Can we take a look at that? Yeah, so Mary Kidd of Golden wrote in to ask about this usage of the term front range to refer to the towns. And what she asks is, question about the location of the front range in Colorado. Is the location shown on your map correct? Route County is west of what is generally considered front range hereabouts. And the U.S. Board on Geographic Names writes back to her and says, in effect, yes, you are correct that the boundary of the front range is really refers to the mountain ranges and not the communities around, and that it could be confusing to residents in the foothills west of Denver. Yes, but in thinking about this, I can't imagine someone who lives around Indian Peaks or Long's Peak or in Nederland or Estes Park thinks of themselves as living on the front range. So to be extra clear, what is the northern, southern, eastern, and western boundaries of the front range? Yeah, so the front range really technically extends from about Laramie in the north to about Canyon City in the south to around Idaho Springs or even Georgetown on the west and then to Golden on the east. Okay, Haley Littleton of Breckenridge got this spot on. She says the western edge is Idaho Springs where the traffic starts. (laughs) And she's about right. 
Yeah. Okay. She sure is. You were raising your hands in joy, Lauren. Well, because now I know I'm just probably eight miles past Evergreen towards Idaho Springs, and now I know I live on the front range. You are a front <laughs> yes, ranger. Just to reflect on something Becky Boyle of Boulder told us on Twitter, in a way, this is also a cultural division. People thinking of themselves as being on the front range or perhaps the western slope. I I think, Sam, you can answer the geographic aspect of this as an open and shut case, but the identity part feels so much more squishy to me. I think it's really up to each individual to decide whether they're from the Front Range or whether they're from somewhere else. Public historian Sam Bach of History Colorado helping us answer Colorado Wonders questions about the Front Range from Lauren Law of Evergreen and Hank Troy of Denver. What makes you wonder in Colorado? Let us know at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. Pam Houston was living in her car after her first book was published. Cowboys Are My Weakness became a bestseller. That was in the early 90s. It allowed her to put a down payment on a ranch near Creed in central Colorado. Now Houston reflects on her connection to that piece of land in her latest book, Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. It was named a finalist for a Colorado Book Award this month. She spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner in May. Your ranch is 120 acres I'd love to have you describe it for us and, and maybe start with the view out your kitchen window, which is really important to you. Uh, yes, it is. Um, well, the first thing I see out my kitchen window is my old barn, which was built in 1920 by the homesteading family there, the Pinkleys. It's a beautiful barn, um, weathering beautifully. And just behind that barn, in in a very similar shape, is the silhouette of Red Mountain, which is a 12,800-foot peak known locally as Red Mountain. It has a different name on the maps. but um, And then just a giant meadow, a, a big park called Antelope Park, which my ranch is a small part of. And, um, and then three sides of me is um, Aspen Forest, uh, Spruce Pine Forest, And then looking the other direction, out the front of the house is the Rio Grande River and a giant cliff called Bristol Head. My goodness. Now, you you mentioned the barn, and uh, you say that it's starting to lean. So is is the barn okay? (laughs) (laughs) The barn's okay. My uh, contractor, R.J. Mann, who's a wonderful contractor in town who restored the homesteader's cabin for me, last year um is going to is going to fix that barn he's going to put a frame inside the larger frame of the barn and he's a person in town who loves the old buildings and loves to preserve them and I can only afford to do one thing at a time but we're little by little we're going to keep the ranch standing you have animals and i love that your animals have people names so there's like <laughs> Isaac and Simon and Jordan and Natasha Right. The, Jordan and Natasha are Icelandic sheep. Isaac and Simon are mini donkeys. Um, I have chickens. I have Irish wolfhounds. Uh, well, at the moment, just one. I lost my William recently, but Olivia, and I'm about to get a new Irish wolfhound named Henry, he needs a home, and he's coming to the ranch. So, yeah, um, yeah, I think of my animals as uh, members of the family, so they deserve uh, serious names. 
I'm sorry to hear about William. Uh, the, yeah. the price tag on the ranch was $400,000. And from your first book, you had $21,000. Uh, quite a leap of faith for a blossoming writer. What, what made you do it? Well, and a leap of faith for Donna Blair, who sold it to me. <laughs> I mean, it seems like the bigger leap of faith was hers, you know. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I was driving around in my car, living in my tent, looking for a place to call home. And, and when I sold Cowboys, my agent handed me that check for 21000 more money than I'd ever seen in my life. And she said, don't spend it all on hiking boots. So I, <laughs> is that is I, that what you would have done? <laughs> well, that's what she thought I would have done. And it would have been something like that. I mean, the only thing I cared about then was outdoor gear. You know, that was my only the only thing I, I spent real money on in those days because I was such an avid outdoors person. But um, and when I saw the ranch, uh, the realtor who showed me the ranch uh, you know, I, I saw it. I fell in love with it. It was the third week of September, so the Aspens were going crazy. You know, it was Colorado at its finest. And, you know, I my 21000 was 5% down. And and uh, he said, I think Donna Blair is going to like the idea of you. Why don't you give me your 21000 which was still in a check form, by the way. <laughs> like, I hadn't even cashed it. And he's like, why don't you give me your 21000 and a signed hardcover copy of Cowboys Are My Weakness, my first book, and I'll see what I can do. And she liked the idea of me. And once she, you know, I, she was a stranger to me, but once she put that vote of confidence in me, it seemed rude to turn it down, you know, and uh, it was like I was on a train and the train had left the station and, and, uh, you know, it seemed like an enormous act of generosity on her part. And so I thought, well, if she believes in me, maybe I believe in myself. Well, you have to believe in yourself enough to run a ranch. I, I, I wonder if you had romanticized it in buying it and maybe failed to see exactly how much work that can be. Oh, certainly. Uh-huh. I mean, I was so ill-prepared. You know, I I came from deep suburbia. You know, I thought you turned... I thought hot water came out of the wall when you turned the tap on. I, I didn't understand the relationship between anything and anything, you know, in terms of how a house runs or certainly how a ranch runs. Um, I didn't understand anything about sweeping chimneys or... UV protection on logs, you know, I mean, the 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 list of things I didn't know, you know, I say, you know, in the book that, that there were all the things I didn't know, and then there were all the things I didn't even know I didn't know, you know, it, and uh, it was a very steep learning curve. And I'm not particularly handy, um, but I'm stubborn. And so I've gotten better. And I I always say it takes me three extra trips to the hardware store, but I can usually get it done. <laughs> and, um, you know, my neighbors were super kind to me. The people in Creed are all about helping each other. And and I learned from them. You know, I I would wait till someone came by and said, hey, when was the last time you swept your chimney? And I'd be like, okay, check, <laughs> you know, sweep my chimney. That's the next thing on the to-do list. Just speaking of Creed, one of my favorite details in the book is that at the entrance to Creed, there's a sign apparently that says 586 nice folks and 17 sore heads. Yes, yeah, that, okay. there, there, there is that sign. And the funny thing about that sign is that they update that sign like all the time, um, both with the um, population as it changes, you know, 
in small ways over the years and also the number of, you know, professed soreheads. You you call this ranch your tiny parcel of the American West, Pam Houston. But before this, as we said, you lived essentially in a tent that you schlepped around in your car. And it made me wonder, do you need to be tethered to the earth, to a piece of property to have a home? Hmm, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure, but I know that my commitment to this piece of property, my determination to save it, um, and I have, I've very recently put it into an environmental trust, um, just, just actually the day I left to go around the country talking about this book, the last thing I did was sign the papers to put it into an environmental land trust, um, with the organization called Right, I, I, my, my dedication to it and the way I've had to show up for it, um, and the ways it's shown up for me, you know, has has turned me into an adult. It grew me up in a way, you know, I I didn't I wasn't parented as a kid, and so, so I don't know if I had to. Like, could I have found home in the wilderness? If I just traveled around and camped out and did lots of wonderful hikes and dog sleds and skis, you know, maybe so, because I love that. But this was a whole different set of lessons. You know, this was a place that, you know, when I turn that corner and Antelope Park opens up in front of me after I've been out teaching or hawking a book or whatever I've been out in the world doing— and I see it, and that's that's my little corner of the valley and my little corner of the world. And and it's made me whole in a way that nothing else had prior to that. I'm fascinated by what you said there. I wasn't parented as a kid. And mm. in, in some ways, this ranch near Creed, Colorado, helped you grow up. Um, and I want to contrast that with the dedication to your first book, Cowboys Are My Weakness, because mm. in it, you you thanked your parents. Right. In this book, though, you write about the horrifying abuse you suffered at the hands of your father and the alcoholism of both of your parents. Mm-hmm. How do you square those things, the gratitude you expressed in the first book and the nightmarishness of, of this one? Well, all I can say about that is, you know, I still have gratitude for my parents. You know, it took me a long time to tell that story. And one reason it took me a long time is because I had a professor years ago who said, you can't swing a dead cat anymore without hitting an abuse story. And that sentence got into me and made me think, okay, well, nobody wants to hear that anymore. But but I'm still grateful for my parents. You know, the last line of this book is about my mom. I gave my mom the last line of my memoir, which she would love. I mean, I have great affection for my parents, even though they did terrible things to me. And I think most abuse victims you talk to would say the same thing. You know, my my parents gave me life. They fed me. You know, we had enough to eat. My mother said, you know, I don't even want to see you till dinner. And she sent me out into the woods and I found myself there. You know, um, I had two parents who didn't want anything to do with having a child and they had one anyway. And, you know, that there were tough times because of that. But that's not the worst thing that can happen to someone. You know, I, I went out and found 
nurturing and love and parenting in the mountains and the rivers and the oceans and 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 ultimately in this ranch um and because the ranch required stuff back you know it required a two-way relationship um i had to to care for it too and that was the critical thing about the ranch but but I, you know, my parents gave me so many things in addition to a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of brokenness. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is the Colorado author Pam Houston. Her new book, a memoir, is called Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. She's making reference uh, in that title to her ranch near Creed, Colorado. And uh, there's a passage that captures the contrast between your life in rural Colorado and life at the University of California, Davis, where you teach. Uh, Will you read from the middle of page 75 for us? And just for some context, it mentions a German-language poet named Paul Ceylon. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) My weird life. In Creed, there is no movie theater and no drugstore and no one who would ever use a phrase like Paul Ceylon-esque. In Creed, I talk to my neighbors about shrinking water tables and bingo at the Elks on Saturday night. When I go to the Monte Vista co-op to buy sealant to shoot into the water trough and mineral licks and big tubes of ivermectin horse warmer and Carhartt overalls, I notice how different it is from the Davis co-op where I buy organic turmeric and homeopathic allergy medicine and where people take their groceries home in environmentally friendly macrame nets. To the people in Creed, I am intelligent, suspiciously sophisticated, and elitist to the point of being absurd. To the people at UC Davis, I am quaint, a little slow on the uptake, and far too earnest to even believe. I wonder if in any other book on the planet... There is, in the same paragraph, Carhartt overalls and organic turmeric. Uh, But but, uh, indeed, a a contrast of your sort of two lives, how do you negotiate them? Well, you know, the fact of the matter is I like my two lives. As much as I love the ranch and as much as I am connected to it and as much as I miss it when I'm gone, and I do, you know, I love sushi and I love art house movie theaters and You know, I love to talk about books, you know, I mean, many, many books. (laughs) And uh, so so I'm I'm grateful for my time away. You know, I I uh, I love to teach and I get to teach at UC Davis and at the Institute of American Indian Arts. I love working with young writers, especially young writers from those communities. And um so I it it's a nice balance, and then and then I get to go home to this beautiful, you know, peaceful, uh, nurturing spot, and do my writing. So it's a beautiful life, and and that's what I mean about my parents. You know, like like I created this beautiful life out yeah. of what they gave me. So it's not like, well, am I mad at them or or am I grateful for them? You mm. know, it's definitely both. Colorado author Pam Houston's latest book is Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. It was named a finalist for a Colorado Book Award this month. The winners will be announced May 30th. 
Finally, tomorrow is St. Patrick's Day, and for folks disappointed by canceled parades and public festivities, we hope some music can still give cause for celebration. Adam Goldstein's love affair with Celtic music began by finding a cassette tape of old Irish drinking songs. His obsession led him to start a band and carry on this song tradition. They call themselves Avernine, and since 2014, the trio has been playing at pubs, dances, and festivals across Colorado. Earlier this month, the band released their sophomore record, a mix of traditional ballads, instrumentals, and originals, including the title track, Sparrow. She had stockings of a white, she had boots of leather, she had eyes of the deepest blue, on a soft cold night, as I walked beside her, from the Goldstein talked with Colorado Matters in 2016 about the timeless appeal of this music and how its influence ripples through generations. One of the quotes that I always think of is Bob Dylan talking about the Clancy Brothers, who were a big folk act in the 60s and they did Irish music. And he said what appealed to him when he was really young and picking up all these different traditions. What he found fascinating about this band is that they would sing these songs that were rebel songs and war songs and then immediately go to the most tender heartbreaking love ballad you could think of and he would say you know they chop off your head and then weep over uh, lost love for goldstein there's no live music experience that can compare to performing these old songs in front of a lively bunch i have yet to find that kind of impact when you're in a crowd that knows these tunes that can sing along it's so communal and it's so joyful and it does really tap into a tradition that you feel goes back hundreds and hundreds of years it was Friday morn when we set sail and we were not far from the land When our captain he spied a mermaid so fair with a glass and a bottle in her hand And the ocean waves to roll and the stormy winds to blow And we poor sailors are skipping at the top while the land lovers lie down below, below, below And a well-spoken man was he. Denver's own landlubbers, Aberneen, with the seafaring song Mermaid. The Irish folk band's new album, Sparrow, was released earlier this month, just in time for St. Patrick's Day. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. Four sailors are skipping at the top.